what's needed for Arabic to standardize and professionalize as it develops as a modern language offering in primary and secondary schools around the world. In this episode of All Things Arabic with me, Ustaza Karamin, we'll be trying to find out and we'll be focusing on what lessons other languages can provide us as Arabic teachers. What did they do to overcome similar challenges that Arabic now faces? In this episode, we meet Anne-Marie Gunter, a world language consultant who has spent her career in language education providing policy leadership, professional development, and technical assistance for K-12 world language programs. We get her insights into what's happening here in the U.S., especially when it comes to secondary school. And for anyone who's listening elsewhere in the world, K-12, which is mentioned in the interview, refers to education from kindergarten through to grade 12, or the end of secondary school. Anne-Marie talks about everything from online classes to building teacher capacity. So we're really excited to have you here with us today because you have 25 years and counting experience in the world language world, teaching, working in administration, really working to professionalize and standardize the teaching of world languages in the U.S. And so we're here today to learn from you how Arabic can learn from other languages and the paths that they have taken towards standardization and professionalization. So I'll start with a pretty straightforward question. Why do you think we should look to other languages? What lessons could possibly help speed up Arabic's growth as a world language, if that's even possible? Well, first, I think it's important to know that we can always learn from each other. That's why it helps to look at other languages and what they have done to build their programs over time and, and to get established in the state so that they're serving the K-12 students who want to learn, in this case, Arabic. Some ways to do that, I think, are already happening here in our state. Uh, one of the most important things, I think, is to develop a community of teachers for a particular language. And, of course, we've done that with the North Carolina Arabic Teacher Council. But, you know, we need to think about that and how that has worked not only for Arabic and is continuing to work, but also for other languages. You know, when you have um, an organization like, for example, the Foreign Language Association of North Carolina flank that serves everyone, that's always a good foundation to build on. Mm. But then one aspect of flank is, of course, what we call our allied organizations. Mm -hmm. Those organizations that are language specific groups with North Carolina chapters or a North Carolina component where those teachers in our state can come together and really share what's working for them, what's not working for them so they can overcome challenges. They can address issues like teacher capacity, because if you want to build language programs, obviously you need teachers. And so it's important that those groups gather and think about how we're building teacher capacity, how are we increasing the number of teachers, in this case, teaching Arabic? Mm -hmm. um, what does that look like over time? How does it happen for different teachers for coming from different backgrounds? You know, you, you have traditional teacher education programs, of course, but you also have things like we have in North Carolina, what's called residency permit. Uh, people who are eager to teach their language and culture uh, already have a bachelor's degree. And so there's a process for them to get their certification or, or to have the opportunity to teach in a K-12 classroom and develop an Arabic program. So I think those are important things to learn from each other. I also think coming together like that, it's an opportunity to share ideas on what works in the classroom because, you know, teaching can be tough. And especially as a world language teacher, you want to make sure you're meeting students' needs and yeah. differentiating mm -hmm. um, and helping them understand the language that they're learning 
mm. but also the culture that that's embedded within okay and how that works and and you know you have a variety of students you know elementary students are different from middle school students are different from high school students so there's yes. so much to learn from each other in those communities absolutely it sounds like the community that you all are building here in North Carolina is truly creating fertile ground for all world languages to grow and expand and really learn from one another. But where do you think the most useful lessons are for Arabic to learn to be able to grow and expand? I think there's there's currently at least three main languages that are growing within K-12 that have some really good lessons for, for Arabic. Mm. The first one is Mandarin Chinese. This is a group of language educators that has been building their programs for a number of years now, mm -hmm. several decades at this point, right? There was a time that we had very low enrollment, about 300 students statewide who were taking Chinese, and now it's growing to over 10,000 every year. That's a huge amount of growth in a very short amount of time. And, you it's know, wild. Yes. <laughs> it, was, it was quite surprising to everybody, but very exciting. Um, but there were several things that they did along the way that I think are important and are good lessons for other languages. Okay. So, for example, when I think about that, that 300 students, that was back in the 2005-2006 school year. Mm -hmm. And along the way, the things they did included things like having um, the Chinese Language Teachers Association of North Carolina. Again, having that community to come together on a regular basis. Interestingly enough, the CLTANC kind of was built in the same way that, that the NC ATC was mm -hmm. built, meaning that those language programs existed in higher education in our state. And there was somebody very interested on one of our campuses in supporting the expansion of K-12 programs. Okay. And so they sort of founded that group. They started building with them, you know, gathering teachers together first at Flank during business meetings or having a strand just like for Asian languages, for example, mm -hmm. so that they could also include Japanese, right? But over time, they, they really looked at making sure they had an annual conference towards the start of school every year. Mm -hmm. They looked at their data very carefully as they, their program started to grow K-12 and move from, you know, 300 students to 800 students to just over 1,000. And again, they kept building. They looked at that data every year and they talked about what it would take to get more teachers and where those teachers could teach a mm -hmm. K-12 Chinese program because we're a local control state. And so which languages are taught and, and where, which schools or maybe which levels of them is all decided locally by our districts, our schools and our programs. Wow. So would you say that it, it requires a lot of buy-in and support from community stakeholders, administration, alongside of having teachers who are capable of coming in and teach and having students who are really excited to learn the language. Most definitely. You, you have to have that local buy-in and you have to have that community support for any new language program okay. in, in your district or in your school. And so what I saw those Chinese teachers doing over time together was helping each other establish that, hmm. starting sometimes as part-time Chinese teachers and maybe teaching English as a second language as well. Right. Until they built enough of a program that they just needed to teach Chinese full time. Right. Another thing I saw happening and I see happening not only with Chinese, but with also Japanese and American Sign Language, which are some other languages that are growing quite quickly in our state, is that they looked very carefully at access to the language. So, you know, we're talking about K-12 programs and, and, and about some of them kind of moving from higher education into our local communities for K-12. But you really have to ask yourself, how does that happen? And how do our students get access to languages that are considered less commonly taught languages, right? right? 
So one thing that's that's been really beneficial for North Carolina is having our North Carolina virtual public school. And it seems to me that one lesson we've learned is that when we're able to offer a less commonly taught language through the North Carolina virtual public school, access increases across the state, obviously, because then that those language courses, would, which are usually high school credit courses in right, language, right. are available to all of our students. Mm-hmm. Consistently. Consistently. Yes. Right. And they're still taught by certified North Carolina teachers. So we still need teachers in all of those areas, right? But they're teaching them online. And so what we saw with Chinese... Starting in 2007, we had the first piloting of online Chinese one and two. Wow. I bet that was a really fun course to take. <laughs> it, it was incredible, I think. And it, we actually had a grant to get that established. That's so neat. A federal grant. Mm-hmm. And so we worked on that and we, we got the first couple of levels established. And then we had additional grants and, and some state monies, in fact, that were dedicated to what were called at the time critical needs languages by our Department of Defense in the U.S., but were considered critical languages here in North Carolina. And so Chinese started that way and took advantage of that. But also some of the languages I just mentioned, Japanese, for example, Russian and Arabic were mm-hmm. also identified, particularly in our state funding, so that now our North Carolina Virtual Public School has, as you know, Arabic 1 and 2 from that funding. Yes. And they just built Arabic 3. And my understanding is their plans is, is to continue to build until we get Arabic 4. Absolutely. So... That's another thing that I think all of our languages could benefit from looking at Mm -hmm. is how do our students have access and do they have the opportunity, for example, to take that language online Mm -hmm. so that they can get established, start building their proficiency and maybe, you know, meet the requirements for our seal of biliteracy for that language. Anne-Marie, could you tell me a little bit more about how you think the seal of biliteracy might be a useful tool or impactful tool to continue professionalizing, teaching other languages, and obviously specifically Arabic in the state of North Carolina and the U.S.? Well, I think the seal of biliteracy is an incredible tool to recognize all of our languages. And it's especially important to think about in a state like North Carolina, where we have not only people studying languages like Arabic, but we also have some Arabic heritage communities. Right. And this is a tool for them to get their language skills recognized and their culture and to make it more visible to everyone. Mm. You know, the seal of biliteracy is, is a recognition of a student's skills as they're finishing high school, right? Mm. They earn it as a, a graduating senior in high school. But in our state, our seal of biliteracy requirements mean that you can start meeting those requirements at very early stages in, in your study. So, for example, in North Carolina, we have requirements for both a world language and English, our seal of biliteracy. Mm-hmm. The requirement for English language arts or English is for students to take the four required English courses in high school and get an unweighted GPA of 2.5 or higher. Okay. Right? That's how they meet that requirement. For world languages right now, we have three options for that. And so in any language a student wants to be recognized with a seal of biliteracy, they have an option uh, that's very popular, which is very similar to English language arts one. And that means that they're taking a level four or higher course in the language, like an Arabic four, mm-hmm. right? And they must get a 2.5 or higher unweighted GPA in their courses that they've taken in the language. Mm -hmm. So that's one way they can meet the world languages requirement. Because of our state policies, they can meet that requirement or using the other options as well, starting in middle school. Wow. So um, some other ways they can do that is they can take a proficiency-based external exam. Mm -hmm. We have a list of those for our proficiency-based standards. And Mm -hmm. so... In North Carolina, the requirement for the seal of biliteracy right now is to have at least intermediate, low, or above proficiency right. in your world language, right? 
And so we have a number of exams where we can test the student in all kinds of languages. Mm -hmm. And so here again is an opportunity for students who are heritage speakers of Arabic. Mm -hmm. Maybe they don't even have the opportunity to study their language, unfortunately, in school, but they can still take an Arabic exam that's on this list. If they get intermediate, low, or higher proficiency, they have met their world language requirement for the seal of biliteracy. Right. And intermediate, low is a, it's absolutely a goal and an expectation of our high school Arabic language teachers who have students over the course of four years. It's a very reasonable, wonderful expectation for them to reach intermediate low. And I think it only furthers, well, I know it's my goal and I feel like it's your goal too, knowing you on a personal level, to really further students in becoming lifelong language learners. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, when we think about language learning in general, it is a, a life skill. It is something you do across your lifespan, right, with whatever languages you have. For our students in K-12 education, what we're seeing is that more students are taking more languages because they have the opportunities to take them mm. and because they know there's a recognition like the seal of biliteracy waiting for them. Right. But it's not just waiting for them there and that's the end. Many of our universities are now starting to give credit for seal of biliteracy earners and not just in North Carolina, but across the country. And that's exciting, too, because not only have they been studying a language or learning a language maybe at home or through their community, mm -hmm. but in fact, once they have that document in the seal of biliteracy, many of our campuses are, are looking at that and saying that they'll give them credit for that as they come in and uh, being admitted as a student. And they will place them in a higher level course so they can continue their learning and, again, continue that building of skills that will benefit them in whatever career or workforce area they go into. Right. That is super duper exciting. Let me ask you this because I know you, you're you at once a dreamer and also a data lover. What story do the numbers tell you about, about Arabic in the state of North Carolina? Or uh, what stories did the numbers say about Chinese or Japanese or American Sign Language? And where can Arabic begin to lean into those numbers and take the steps and take the opportunities that other world languages have taken to be able to show up to world language conferences and say, hey, listen, we are no longer a less commonly taught language. We are now a more commonly taught language or a just a world language, I think. It yeah, goes from well, less commonly taught to, to more commonly taught. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you're right. I do love data. And we live in, as we keep being reminded, a data-driven society, right? And I think it's important for us as world language educators to think about what our data is. And like you said, what story does it tell us in general? But more importantly, what story does it tell us about our students and what they need and where they're going and what, what they want for their future? Mm. And they want languages. Every year, I download our data, so in our statewide data, right, for the state about which languages are being taught, what course levels, what kinds of programs are we seeing in that data. I publish that so that we have an overview for the state, right? Wow. And we can say, okay, these are the number of languages we have. We have 18 right now, by the way. And here's how they line up by overall enrollment across the state. Okay. Here's the different courses that we saw being offered in this last school year. Mm -hmm. And then I also include information on that flyer that I put out annually. Details about like, you know, for our seal of biliteracy, what language is that being earned in this year? And how many students are in there? What percentage of our graduating class left the graduation stage with a seal of biliteracy in wow. language? And that's been really powerful because what I do with that, besides sharing it with our teachers and, and, and others who ask about our language programs K-12, is that I challenge our teachers and our, our programs to say, take that information, 
the overall statewide data, and find where you and your students are in those numbers mm. and what your story is locally. Because you've got the overall numbers, but you know what happens in your own classroom and your own program. Right. It's not just about the numbers and who's enrolled, right? It's about things like, you know, do you have an Arabic honor society where you're recognizing students all along the way? Do you have maybe an opportunity to travel abroad or study abroad and use the language with, with different people around mm -hmm. the world? Do you have an opportunity to share your languages with your own local community here in North Carolina? Many of our um, teachers take the opportunity to, to tap into our standards where we talk about cultures and communities and have their students share that with their local community in very significant ways. You know, reaching out, for example, to, let's say, some of the elderly citizens in their community, maybe in assisted living or nursing homes, or being present when there's a community event going on and they share information maybe in the language they're learning, right. or they just talk about the languages they're learning in their schools and what they're gonna do with those in their careers to help our world. And so the more visible those languages can be, hmm. I think the better. You know, teachers often ask, well, how can I build my, my program if my numbers are low or I want them to be higher or whatever. Put it out there. Absolutely. You yeah. have to make it visible and you have to make it visible in your community. And so I collect that data, but I encourage our teachers to say, just look at that data. Use that as an idea starter. Use it to brainstorm. Use it as a template for your own flyer about your local programs mm -hmm. or, or about what you do in your classroom. Right. Make people aware of what's happening with our students and the languages they're learning and what they're doing with those, where they're taking them. Wow. It sounds like you're basically encouraging teachers to create a power-up guide to how do we expand the programs. So, Anne-Marie, we've talked about all of the positive reasons why and how we can learn from other languages. Do you think there might be any risks in stepping outside of our Arabic language lane and learning from other languages that have their own distinct characteristics, communities of learners, their own distinct challenges? You know, that's an interesting question. In the end, I think the answer is no. There aren't any risks. Okay. We, we really are learning from each other. Mm. The only risk I would say is that sometimes, humans being who they are, we get pretty competitive. And if you see somebody else's, some other languages enrollment numbers going up faster, or you see teachers doing different things that maybe you're not able to do yet because you haven't developed your program yet, it can be hard. And you can feel like maybe you're not able to do what you want to do or, or, or that those other languages somehow are eclipsing you. But I think that's the wrong stance to take. Because, right. Because again, each person, each teacher and each program is on their own journey, Right. And so you can look at what others are doing and just take what you can learn from that and apply it in your own way. It doesn't have to be done the exact same way in different languages in order to grow languages or, or to promote them. It can be done in different ways that's right for those languages and the communities they're in. Absolutely. So I think we sometimes have to tell ourselves, though, though competitiveness is a good trait often in our, in our culture, we don't want to be overwhelmed by that. Hmm. And we don't want to compare ourselves too much in a negative way because we want to focus on what, what we can learn from a positive standpoint right. and apply that in the way that works best for us. Right. And being and being on our own consistent, effortful timeline. Right. It was something that I've been having to remind myself of that this year as the coordinator for the North Carolina Arabic Teacher Council, that I have all of these wonderful colleagues around me who are teaching Mandarin mm -hmm. and I'm constantly learning from them. But even I get caught up a little bit in the cycle of, oh, wow, what if we had 3,000 students learning Arabic and 
inshallah, one day we absolutely will be there. And it's just about continuing to be consistent, continuing to connect to those communities, continuing to reflect back on the data, what it's telling you about your community, your program, your school, your classroom, and continuing to ask each other for help and continuing to to move forward. Yeah, absolutely. And, and also don't lose sight of the fact that whoever you're looking at, whatever language or program, they were once where you were at. Mm. You know, like I said, there was a time that we hardly had any Chinese enrollment in the state. Now we have the benefit of looking at them as they are now. But some years ago, they had a very low enrollment. They were one of the least commonly taught languages in North Carolina, many yeah. other states. And it's taken them 10, 15, 20 years to grow into where they're at. And Arabic can do that too. It just in, takes time. Inshallah. Inshallah. We'll, we'll end this on an inshallah on a positive note. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. And we truly hope to continue to shift our data bit by bit so that every year when it rolls into your computer and you're looking at it, you continue to be inspired and surprised and grow even more enthusiastic about Arabic becoming a more commonly taught language alongside of all of the other global languages. That sounds fantastic. Thank you so much for inviting me. A lot of advice there on how Arabic can develop what other languages can offer, and the importance of embracing the community. And of course, data. This is a topic I hope to explore further in the future, so do keep listening. In the meantime, thank you for joining me for this episode of All Things Arabic. This podcast was made possible by QFI, Qatar Foundation International, a U.S.-based organization that helps make the teaching and learning of Arabic as accessible and professional as other world languages. Subscribe, like, share this podcast. Please do let your colleagues and friends know about it. And head over to the QFI website to learn more about opportunities and resources available to language educators and students. Ma'asalamah.